Tony, welcome. We are Podcast 35. Listeners, welcome back. It's good to have you here. Tony, we're talking about, well, I think it becomes a boring subject, but interestingly enough, our clients actually love the subject and it's a conversation that they really do get involved in and they get engrossed when you're talking. I think it's your passion that ignites it, but we're talking asset allocations, but more about how we sort of you know build our model portfolios within Kofkin Bond. Flip of a coin, isn't it? Heads yes. or tails? Heads or tails. <laughs> no, mm. only joking. <laughs> what is it, the Motley Fool? What do we see up on that? Best oh, shares, geez. jump in on it. <laughs> yes. So, no, we are, we are talking about sort of the, the, the method in the madness um, mm-hmm. and how we build our portfolios, why we build them a certain way, why we're different from other people. Um, you know, I guess you go to one fund manager and they're going to tell you the way they build it is better than anyone else. Um, yep. But... We're going to explain how we build ours um, and why we do. So let's start with that, but let's start with the asset allocation. Um, what sort of forms the theory behind it um, and how it's well, not really, but it, it forms the portfolios. But there's three types of asset classes. Um, there's the dynamic asset allocation, there's strategic asset allocation, and then there's tactical asset allocation. Do you want to explain how we're sort of mixing those? Yeah, I, I will, but I'll, I'll go back one step. That's the, those three strategies are based on the equity market. Yep. So unless somebody is a high conviction where they've got 95% of their money in the investment market, they're not going to have just exposure to all those. So they will also have fixed interest, bonds, cash as well. So for example, growth investor might have 70% on market and 30% in growth assets and 30% in defensive assets. So I'll just clarify that as an example. Uh, So it does depend on somebody's risk profile, starting conservative, going all the way through to high conviction. Yeah, and we've done a lot of work with Morningstar in regards to those risk profiles. Absolutely. um, And actually coming up with and using, you know, a, a big team to actually create those risk profiles as to where we work our portfolios. Absolutely. And I think the key is, is that we do get to work you know, with Morningstar, uh, they have been invited and do a very good job and they do sit on our investment committee. Uh, they don't get an allocation based on just sitting on our investment committee. So we do have other external managers as well, but we do find their independent research to be quite exceptional. Yeah. Um, and as a result, uh, they do get part of our funds under management, but they also do help us with the asset allocation. But the funds of theirs that we use do have a specific style, which are complementary uh, and sometimes contradictory to some of the other three, uh, two strategies that we will work with as well. Yep. All right. Well, let's start with them. Dynamic asset allocation. So we have a portion of our portfolio that's uh, in the equity market, obviously, that, mm-hmm. that's to the dynamic asset allocation. Yeah. And just because when we say dynamic asset allocation, let's talk at, say, different risk profiles. So, for example... Well, do, we, do we want to give the rundown of what the term... Well, the, you can read it out. Okay. Definitely. Dynamic asset allocation is a portfolio management strategy that frequently adjusts the mix of asset classes to suit market conditions. Adjustments usually involve reducing positions in worst performing asset classes while adding positions in the best performing asset classes. Yeah. And so as an example of that as well, if they think certain markets are overvalued, they will have a lot lower exposure than say, if you're if we're using a growth risk profile where we've got seventy percent on market, the normal index fund or industry super fund might have you know twenty five percent of that entire fund actually sitting in Australian equities. 
uh, our exposure to Australian equities could be that, could be higher, could be lower. We're not actually set on that. And it's purely based on the valuations that actually come in there as well. So when you're actually uh, looking at dynamic, dynamic is a case of seeing where there are opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities. And if there aren't opportunities, if markets are fully priced or there's certain volatility, uh, a dynamic asset allocation uh, strategy can actually have a very high exposure to cash and fixed interest. Even if it's a growth portfolio. Absolutely. So, you know, a, a growth portfolio, um, I th- I'm fairly certain at the moment, their growth portfolio within dynamic asset allocation within our portfolio, that component in growth is currently sitting at around about 50% defensive assets, which are your fixed interest, uh, both internationally, Australian credits and cash. And the whole idea of that is they will look at opportunities. So, and the best, one one of the best examples, well, I'll give you two examples. Uh, Prior to Trump coming into power, bearing in mind that the bookies had gave him a 2% chance of actually winning the election just prior to the election. Uh, when you actually have a look at that, one of the things that he stated he was, did, he was going to dismantle Obamacare. And Obamacare is our form of Medicare. And by dism- you had a whole lot of uh, companies that we all know, Procter & Gamble, um, Johnson, 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 Pfizer, all the drug companies basically that um, got a hammering uh, when Trump won the election, and that sector, the healthcare sector, dropped by nearly sixty percent, yep. based on the fact that he said he was going to dismantle Obamacare. Um, now, coming up to his first term election. He, hasn't, he still hasn't dismantled Obamacare, nor has he built his wall. Yeah. Uh, but in saying that, what happened was those stocks got absolutely hammered because a lot of people had speculated on those stocks and bought into them purely based on the fact that they're supported by Obamacare. and like, It's similar to our Medicare system. So based on that, you have the dynamic asset allocation where healthcare stocks might have taken up 4% on an average asset allocation of the portfolio, these guys went quite heavy and went to around about 6% of the portfolio, where it actually turned over time to around about 10% of the portfolio. And that, it went from 6 to 10 purely based on growth. So if you had a great stock like Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble, etc., that just dropped 60% in value overnight, but his forward projection earnings were actually still the same, he went from might have been good value or expensive to being great value all of a sudden. So this is where Morningstar and their dynamic asset allocation approach came in and actually bought quite heavily into that sector. So if we look then, uh, take another more recent day example and look at Brexit. How has Brexit affected the European markets? So as an example, we have the UK market might take up, um, it takes up 3% of the global index. So you'd have your normal strategic asset allocation, say on a global scale, uh, would have 3% exposure to the UK market. Now, the UK market in Europe developed has all actually dropped quite considerably because of fears of Brexit and what's going to happen in the markets. So with the dynamic asset allocation, they're currently sitting at around about 6%, so 100% over-index on the UK. 
but they haven't just gone the UK index. They've looked at specific stocks that have what they call a moat. So in other words, if you think of a castle, the bigger that moat is around a castle, the safer that castle is because it's harder to penetrate. So what are those companies uh, that earnings are not necessarily going to be affected by Brexit? And where they've gone heavy into? Uh, telecommunications. We're still going to use their mobile phones, uh, IT. So you've got, you know, British Telecom, you've got uh, Telefonica. Uh, you, so the telecommunications, Vodafone. You've got the telecommunications in, uh, in general, in uh, the UK and Europe that they've gone uh, quite heavily in. Secondly, they've gone into utilities and power. So people are going to still flick their televisions on and off and still put their electricity um, on and off. So they haven't gone and necessarily bought the index and have exposure to banking in Europe and things like that. They've looked at sectors that have a, a wide moat around them, so they're pretty safeguarded against any downturn that will happen. And they've gone quite heavily into there because they're regarding it right now as a bit of a Boxing Day sale whilst they're, whether Brexit happens, whether it doesn't happen, how it happens is not the point. The point is they're looking at certain sectors that are buffered against the up or the down because they've got what they call a wide moat um, attached to it. So, so based on that, that's going sector specific. Yep. Um, and we have a good allocation to that, but right now they're, they're fairly cashed up as well. Yeah, that's, I guess, the conservative part yeah, of our portfolio that's right. at the moment. Um, keep that Boxing Day sales story. I know a lot of clients have heard it, and we may have mentioned on this, but we will speak about that when we're talking about the risk cycle um, yep. a bit later. But let's keep with the active side of the portfolio. Um, tactical asset allocation. So mm. again, tactical asset allocation is an active management portfolio strategy that shifts the percentage of assets held in various categories to take advantage of marking prices anomalies or strong market sectors. Yep. So how's this sort of going to our portfolio? Okay, so if we have a look at that, let's take for example the Australian ASX 200. The Australian ASX 200 uh, our largest company on any given day at the moment is roughly is the Commonwealth Bank, which takes up about 7.75%, uh, not to be too precise, of the Australian index. So when you actually have a look at that, it, it does have, you know, a good... Commonwealth Bank is actually, it's a good company, uh, and it does have a wide moat in regards to when you're looking at the exposure or, or the safety um, compared to some of the other banks. A lot of it is personal lending, not yep. business lending, etc. So if we go into a recession. Based on that though, an index will just have 7.75% exposure. If we look at a company, say like Vanek that we use, uh, their, um, their fund, on the Australian asset allocation, they look at great companies that are listed in the top 300 that they think right now are a bit unloved but have good future earnings. So it might that company might be a bit volatile over the next 12 months, but they're looking at it at three to five years. So it's, it's that Warren Buffett approach in a way of a great company that's just currently unloved. And a lot of those companies were mining uh, because we had a big growth run. So a lot of those companies, you know, have been mining. A lot of those companies, you know, that were previously unloved uh, were in the um, just the consumer sector, etc. It's what they commonly call value, uh, value style, because everyone were rushing to other sectors. So, so based on that, they look at companies in the top 300, and they will say, "We like this. We think it's we think it's uh, undervalued, and we will have a one percent or one point five percent exposure." 
And what's interesting when you have a look at the top 20 holdings of, say, VanEx uh, tactical asset allocation uh, versus, say, the market index, is top 20 holdings, which take up around about, I think, about 30% of the entire portfolio. I think there's 83 stock in that, uh, in that fund. If you have a look at that, you've got companies in there that everyone knows, but compared to the index, there's no relevance. You don't see the banking, Telstra, BHP, yep. et cetera, sitting in that. So they will look at great companies that they just think are offering good longer-term value, and they will invest accordingly. Uh, they still have a buffer, so they still have what we call that wide moat uh, going around it, but, uh, but they look at saying we will have a good future upside on those, and they will invest accordingly. I think their largest holding, though, is still only about 1.15% of the portfolio. So it's not as if they go on a heavy bet. Yeah. And they say, you know, the XYZ company is completely undervalued. Let's go and put 25% into that. They're still extremely diversified. Yeah. All right, let's move on to, I guess, what some people may say the most boring side, um, but the strategic asset allocation. So strategic asset allocation is a portfolio strategy that involves setting target allocations for various asset classes and rebalance periodically. Yeah, so an example of that is your typical Vanguard index funds. Yep. An index fund is... And what's the index? Okay, so it can be any index. So as an example, we could be looking at the... MSCI Global Index X Australia, or we could be looking at the Australian ASX 300 index. And the index, if we look at the Australian, I'll use those examples, uh, one that everyone will know. If you have a look at the Australian ASX 300 index, the largest uh, is the top 300 companies in Australia averaged out as per what their market capitalisation is in the market. So at the moment, the largest company in Australia is Commonwealth Bank. 7.75% 7.75% of the Australian uh, index. And guess what? Vanguard's exposure to Commonwealth Bank is 7.75%. So it's realistically all that does is match the index. Now, in a rising market, uh, just going and matching the index is a very good strategy. And so actually, the best when people say, oh, you know, index is lazy, is lazy investing or, uh, you know, index is not going to work, you know, tactical asset allocation or dynamic asset allocation will outperform. That's rubbish. All these three strategies combined all are star performers at different times in the cycle. And I think the example of that is when we go and marry uh, the ASX 300, say, through Vanguard, and we, ma- we marry that with VanX uh, Australian quality. If you have a look at those, there's no correlation in regards to the stock holding that is in there. So if, uh, if we go and have, uh, by putting those together, there isn't that correlation, which I think is really important. But then if you have a look at it on a global scale, so if we're looking at um, Vanguard's, uh, say, uh, MSCI, so Morgan Stanley Consumer Index on a global scale, strip Australia out of it, and we blend that with VanX uh, tactical asset allocation, unlike Australia, the top 20 holdings are actually quite similar. It's just that, as an example, if Apple are currently the largest holding on the global index, in Vanguard that makes up 2.25% of the index. In uh, the Van Eck fund at the moment, I think it's about 6.5% of the index. So what they're saying is over the next 10 years, they regard Apple, even though it's just 2.2% of the index, they regard Apple as a really good growth story going forward over the next decade. 
So unlike Australia, the global indexes, say your VanEck tactical asset allocation versus your Vanguard index, there's not a lot of difference in respect to the names. There is a, a huge difference in regards to the asset allocation. Vanguard's global index, 1,500 stock in it. Uh, VanEck's uh, tactical asset allocation, global, ex-Australia, uh, I think currently holds about 150 stock in it. So it's a bit more concentrated. But they say, we like Facebook, we might make up 2% of the portfolio, we get, we're happy to have 4% moving forward. We think it's currently undervalued, we're going to have that. So, so whereas they still look at, unlike Australia, where there's a big difference, but I think what this also then comes down to, Jamie, is that, as you, as you know, we don't have an Australian bias. Yeah. Um, Beat me to my next question. Okay. And why, don't we, why don't we have that? We should plan these things yeah. before the conversation, well, shouldn't we? Yeah, I guess when we were talking before, we've had um, risk profiles designed specifically by Morningstar, yeah. um, where we try to fit our portfolios to follow a 10 each side, I guess, mm-hmm. um, an allocation. But, you know, there's Australian bias within those risk profiles. Um, and it seems to be yeah. an Australian thing. And why, why do we have an Australian bias? Um, we don't. So it's uh, when when you when you consider that you know the Australian market makes up uh, less than two percent of the entire global index. So if you've got a twenty five percent exposure to the Australian market, that doesn't make much sense to me. And uh, you know the Australian market can be undervalued and it can be overvalued. If it's completely undervalued, we'll have a higher exposure. If it's completely overvalued, uh, we'll have a lower exposure. And when, so when you have a look at it from a global perspective, which is what we have to take, we're not, we don't have an Australian hometown bias. The, if we can go back 10 years to 2008, the 2008 to 2018, the largest company in Australia in 2008 was BHP prior to the uh, crash that happened, the global financial crisis, was BHP at a high of $44 a share. Back in 2018, before the market came off in September last year, it was valued at $34 a share. The ASX 200 back in 2008 compared to 2018 still hadn't hit what its high was in 2008. So if you've got a hometown bias, you're missing out on global opportunities. There are currently 60 companies uh, listed in the S&P 500, which is the US market. Uh, so the top 500 companies listed in the US that actually weren't around 10 years ago. Uh, and these are, these are names that we know, like Google, Facebook. So they were around, but they actually weren't listed. So by having a global exposure where that market, a sense of GFC, has actually gone up three times. So if you don't have that global exposure, you've missed out on that growth. And I, I think that's the key, is that we don't have a bias on Australia because we live here, uh, we have a bias on a global perspective of where we think there's some good value moving forward. Yeah, and look, I think it's our job um, moving on to the next part is to you know mitigate risk. Yeah, um, and that's part of our, and that's why we combine the three asset um, the asset allocations together. Correct. Um, so I'm looking at a great graph right now, which is the risk cycle, um, mm. and this is where you can tell your Boxing Day sales story um but it's explain to it why we build our portfolios this way um with that story as well so i love looking at this this graph it's got you know the times where it's excitement thrill euphoria that's when you're at the maximum of your financial risk and then by the time you're getting panic capitulation and desperation well that's when the maximum time is to invest yeah 
Well, if I, if because you know, I, I love to tell a story. So if we use a metaphor and use my the way I was raised and how my children celebrate Christmas. So I was raised with a Jewish father who was St Monica's Catholic Church's treasurer. Uh, and I was who grew up in the East End of London and an Irish Catholic mother. So basically we got to celebrate lots of holidays, you know, both Catholic and dad wasn't a practicing Jew, but the fact was he was actually Jewish. So. Let's use that metaphor, and my children know this metaphor quite well because it's how they've lived the last 20 and 23 years of their life. Well, I expect when they were really kids. Think of uh, Christmas. If you think of the stock market and the euphoria, everyone goes out and buys their family and kids Christmas presents, and when are things at their most expensive? When everyone's buying, yep. so why would a you know a Myers go out and put a uh, a big sale on on Christmas Eve when everyone's buying? You know, so it, it just doesn't happen. So the analogy I use is the Boxing Day sale. So whereas I say to my kids, you know, I'm going to give you 500 bucks towards Christmas presents uh, this year. We so, but you're going to buy things with them. You're not allowed to put in cash and buy beer <laughs> with it. So it's actually we're going to buy things with it. Now we have a choice. We can go shopping prior to Christmas, and you can buy three things for that five hundred bucks, five things or whatever for that five hundred dollars, or we can go uh, shopping with that five hundred dollars on Boxing Day and buy fifteen things for that five hundred dollars. Yep. So what we're saying is, and this is where that dynamic asset allocation comes into play, is that when there's euphoria in the markets, usually the next thing that happens is blood in the streets. So it's uh, when people are flooding to the markets is when you should fear them the most. And we know the Australian market at the moment, looking historically, is quite high. And most likely, looking at the numbers, could fall into recession over the, you know, over the next coming years or over the next coming months, sorry. So it doesn't mean that's just two negative quarters. So it doesn't mean that, you know, all the markets will suddenly start dropping tremendously, but all it takes is a 10% drop in the markets and we're back to 2007 prices again, just for the 10% drop. The US market has to drop 300% to get back to 2007 prices. Yep. And that's because of the different, they're at a different level. now. The US market, we don't think will fall into recession, but we do think things you know, are pretty high priced, but we have to look out over 10 years. So where certain things are gonna be in 10 years time. So when it actually comes to the market cycles, this is where the dynamic asset allocation works well. They will hold a lot of fixed interest in cash. Saying the growth fund that you mentioned is currently about 50% fixed interest in cash, global fixed interest, Australian fixed interest, etc. Now they're holding on to that because they're not seeing a lot of value where the markets are right now. So as an example, if we bought Microsoft before the 2008 GFC occurred, they were the fourth largest company in the US. They had a market valuation of $330 billion. Basically a week after the Lehman Brothers collapsed, they were valued at $195 billion. They just dropped 33% in value. So if we gave you uh, a 1% exposure, when they were 330 billion, that 1% exposure has now dropped to 7.7%. Uh, well, still 1%, but the whole, because the whole market's dropped. Where the difference lies is if you have a look 10 years later in 2018, Microsoft were, had a market cap of $960 billion. 
when the correction happened last year, this time last year, they dropped to $760 billion. So even if we brought you in at the peak of 2008 and still had you in at the peak of 2018, you so you had 10 grand exposure, let's say, in 2008. In 2018, you actually, that 10 grand is still worth 30 grand now. It's gone up three times, and then that 30 might have dropped to 25, but that's when we went back in, as you're aware. So new money wasn't going in in September last year, but if you had bought in 10 years earlier, we're certainly not selling you out. Yeah. Uh, we're happy with that. And then where the valuation is going forward, go back to that BHP example, $44, 10 years later, $34 a share. So it's the market hadn't risen. So if you have an Australian bias on your investing, uh, you can be in trouble. Now at the moment, as you know, we don't have much exposure to listed property trusts, either in Australia or globally. Why? Because people rushed to that before the election uh, happened, thinking Labor were going to get into power and we're going to cut all the imputation credits on their self-managed super funds um, and they were going to miss out on tax credits. So they flooded out of the banking stocks and moved into the listed property trusts because uh, you're still getting good income there, but of course the valuations end up getting pushed way through the roof. Yep. So, so right now they're just too expensive. It doesn't mean we won't have exposure in the future, but right now they're too expensive for new money to go in. If you had that money in 10 years ago, we're not as concerned. Yeah. Yep. Tony, thanks for your time. I love picking your brain when it comes to I've things I've got like another there. hour of things to talk <laughs> about, Jamie. You're cutting me off yeah, now. There's still so much more to talk about. But I guess, well, I guess if anyone wants to hear further, they can book in with you to talk for the next three hours on it. But, uh, <laughs> but I I'll, can send anyone to sleep on yeah, this topic, Jamie. I'll wrap you up there. But, Tony, thank you and uh, look forward to next week. Thank you, gents.